Motorsport 411 presents all the four and two-wheeled action. Motorsport 411 with Sean Cardavillis. Welcome to Motorsport 411. Your home for all your four and two-wheel action in Africa. In this first episode of 2023, we have a special roundup of the Dakar Rally. We speak to Ahmed Al-Khwari who completed his first Dakar in the T3 prototype class. We catch up with Ross Branch from Botswana who had a very successful run in the motorcycle class so winning two stages. And we get the experiences of Colin Clark, the voice of rally, who was in Saudi Arabia for his first ever Dakar experience. He also previews the 2023 World Rally Championship that begins this week in Monte Carlo. All the four and two-wheeled action. Motorsport 411. Welcome uh, to the show. So the 2023 uh, Dakar Rally is done and dusted. The weather conditions and the length of the route were the main features this year. Nasser Alatia won his fifth event, finishing comfortably ahead of Sebastian Loeb, who set a new record of six stage victories in a row. Here's the reaction of Alatia at the end of the event. Yeah! Uh, it was uh, really uh, tough uh, Dakar for everybody, but okay, we manage and we to win again, you know, in row. It's really uh, it's amazing, you know, to defend our title. You know, I am happy, you know, to win five times, Matthew four times now, and uh, sorry, Matthew, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so that's five times winner NASA Alatier. In the motorcycle category, it was Kevin Benavides from Argentina who beat Toby Price by just 43 seconds. Big, big emotion. I work a lot for this and also, yeah, for all the people that is with me, my family, my girlfriend, my, my friends, all the, the team that also always support to me. And of course, also, Paulo is always looking at me and I think, uh, yeah, uh, thank you for all the person that uh, they stay with me and they believe also in me. In the lightweight prototype T3 class, uh, Ahmed Alkwari uh, finished his first Dakar rally after three attempts. He was navigated by Manuel Luquez, and their vehicle was a Yamaha 1000R, a turbo prototype with the X-ray team uh, supported by Yamaha. Alkwari spoke exclusively to Motorsport 411. Uh, we had a good Dakar. The first week was quite difficult, uh, very physical. The second week was uh, uh, showed us another uh, set of challenges. Uh, one challenge that I did not foresee this year actually is the situation in the bivouacs because of the cold and the rain. Uh, the bivouacs didn't offer much rest for the drivers and uh, and the teams. So uh, alhamdulillah, but we managed to get through all of that. At times it seemed impossible, but we did. And uh, uh, we're very lucky to be at the finish of the car. And, uh, it, it was a lovely time. I, I appreciate this Dakar more than any of the others I've ever done. It was definitely the most difficult uh, and the most varied terrain. And uh, even though some stages uh, showed to be short in distance, but uh, they were very long for us as drivers since the average speeds were uh, quite low. In the end, we we managed that another top 10, seventh place in the last stage. I just wanted to, to show that we have some speed that we are holding back to, to achieve the finish. Uh, and it was a lovely ceremony, and uh, I got my finally my finisher's medal of Dakar after after three failed attempts. So I'm very very happy about that. That's Ahmed Al Kwari speaking exclusively to Motorsport 411. 
Now, going back to the motorcycle category, Ross Branch from Botswana won two stages. Ross, sir, thank you so much for speaking to us on Motorsport 411. Now, congratulations. Two stage wins in the Dakar. I'm sure you must be thrilled uh, despite the other issues you had. Hey, guys, thanks so much for having me on the show yet again. And uh, yeah, a very happy new year to you. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really really happy with the with the stage wins. Obviously, uh, you know it wasn't the overall and the final result that we're looking for, but um, yeah, super happy with the stage wins and and showing that I've still got the speed. Now you did have an issue on one of the days that really cost you a, a lot of time. Just explain what happened. Yeah, you know we had a, a issue on two days on stage four and stage five, and uh, yeah, it was it was a bit unlucky. You know, we we had some fuel issues. We ran out of fuel on um, on both days. Um, nobody's fault at all. It wasn't. No one was to blame. It was just a, an unfortunate malfunction of one of the injectors on the bike. Um, so yeah, we we I ran out of fuel at kilometer one hundred and seventy eight, and the refuel was at kilometer two hundred and fifty. So. Yeah, I was just uh, really unlucky, but um, yeah, like I say, I'm in one piece, and uh, yeah, we lost we lost the Dakar that day for sure because um, you know there's no way that you can come back from a six and a half hour def- deficit. So yeah, I was very unlucky, but um, yeah, that's rally racing, and we just have to yeah pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and carry on. Now, we were really fortunate to follow you every day. Uh, there was the daily highlights, and there was a very touching. Uh, seen uh, that there was a part where you were helping another biker uh, can you give us more details regarding that yeah you know i think dakar is um you know we go there to race we go there to win definitely but um when something like that happens and a buddy like a guy that you know and somebody that stops next to you in 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 needs help you know it's um it was yeah I, I i had to help him you know i really wanted to help him and and try and get at least one of us back on the road and we couldn't i was i was in such a bad situation i couldn't get uh get to the to the refuel and he had a good chance of getting to the refuel after we try to fix his bike so yeah just gave it all we could and um yeah we, we actually funny enough finished on that day pretty close to each other so <laughs> It was a very different Dakar. Uh, first of all, the distances were insane. Uh, you know, the the overall distance of the Dakar was uh, much, much more. I think nearly double uh, of last year. And then also the weather conditions were very, very different this time. Huh? Yeah, definitely. It was the hardest Dakar. Well, definitely the hardest rally I've ever done in my life, in my racing career. Um, just because of, of the distances, you know, the rally was so long. Um, the riding wasn't so technical. It was just big distances, and which means that you start early. So on average, I was waking up at 2.30 in the morning and uh, getting on the liaison at 3.30, 4 o'clock. So it was uh, really long days and, and long time on the saddle. So it was, yeah, really hard. But um, yeah, it was it was good. You know, it was a completely different Dakar. I think out of the 15 days of racing, we had 13 days of rain and and really bad weather. So it also made it interesting and obviously played a big a big part in the performance of the bike. So it was very different. But it was the same for everybody, and everybody had the same kind of struggles. And uh, well, we had to we had to prepare in a different way for sure each day. But um, yeah, it was. I think that's that's the cool thing about Dakar is that it changes all the time. It's never the same thing, so you never know what to expect. You've just got to be the best prepared you can. Yeah, it was very unusual to see the rain and the havoc that it caused. Um, it, it really changed the texture of the sand. Uh, it almost turning it into into concrete or cement. How how difficult was it uh, negotiating the dunes uh, with that much water? 
Yeah, it was it was tough. Like I said, it is the tough. It was definitely the toughest one this year because of all that kind of stuff. But um, I think it was just the unexpected, you know, that was really difficult because you would uh, be riding along and the sand dunes were quite easy and and uh, the the texture of the sand was was like the same throughout. And then all of a sudden it would get super soft and you'd go over the handlebars every five seconds and then it would get super hard and and uh, yeah, it was it was really hard to read the dunes and to try and prepare and obviously. The speed that you that you ride the dunes it is completely different for the different kinds of dunes. You know, for soft dunes you want to go carry a bit more speed in, and for harder dunes you want to be a little bit slower so you don't jump off the end of them. So it was really difficult to try and keep your keep your head in the game and and make sure that you don't make stupid stupid mistakes, which um, which I did on day one. But uh, yeah, it is it's just it is what it is, and uh, yeah, it was it was a tough one. <laughs> How difficult was it in the bivouacs? Uh, because uh, a lot of them were flooded uh, or had issues uh, due to the rain. Yeah, it was chaos. I think the whole rally, you know, I must say congratulations to all the organizers because they did a fantastic job just dealing with situations as they happened. And uh, the bivouacs were were flooded and slippery and, and everything was wet and... Yeah, it was difficult to move around in the bivouac. So pretty much as I got there, normally I'd go and, uh, you know, talk to people and, and move around a little bit and, and just enjoy the Dakar vibe. But no, not many people were out this time just because of the cold and the wet that it, that it was in the bivouacs. Um, but yeah, you know, they cancelled the stage and the, the organisers made a good decision to cancel that stage because of safety for us. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a rally that was chucked on its head from, from the weather, that's for sure. Now, it was really unpredictable in the bikes. Uh, we saw earlier on uh, two favorites uh, crashing out. Uh, but for you, uh, two stage wins. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, the, I think this, this rally claimed a lot of the, the fast guys and the elite riders for sure. Um, there was a lot of guys that were taken away in a helicopter. I'm glad that everybody is... It's sort of okay. Um, everybody's walking and, and pretty much in one piece, which is good to see because you never like to see your friends out there get hurt. Um, but yeah, then the the stage wins was, uh, I really needed it, you know. I needed it for the confidence and, and just for for this year, going into going into the next couple of rounds of the World Championship, you know, I've got some wins under my belt. It's, it helps with the confidence a lot. And it also shows that I've still got the speed to, to win some races, which was important for me and my mind game. So... Yeah, I was I was really happy and um, yeah, I was quite content with with two stage wins. You know, a lot of people were pushing and saying they wanted the third one, and obviously I go there to the start line to race and to win. But uh, I didn't want to take too many risks. You know, the guys are going so fast and they had such a big race going up at the front that they were taking all the risks that they could to to win. So I couldn't take those risks. I wasn't in a position to do that. So yeah, I'm really happy with two stage wins and and with the way that Dakar went. Obviously, the two bad days. Um, was not good for us, but uh, all in all, we've we've got a bike now that can win, and uh, you know the team is ready. We learned a lot this um, this rally on on what could go wrong with wet weather. So yeah, um, all in all, I think it was really good for me. Ross, just tell us about uh, Hero Motorsport and uh, the support you're getting. Uh, the bike, uh, how was the experience for you? It was amazing. You know, they're such a good team, and they it's like a family being uh, being a family at the races. And I think it has to be like that for 15, 16 days. Um, you know, those are the the closest people to you. So the, they really, really amazing. There was no pressure from their side at all. And uh, obviously, when I won when I won the the stage for them, they were over the moon. You know, and then the second stage I won, they were just like 
flabbergasted. So it was really cool for them and it was really cool for me. And obviously everybody that supports me was really happy. So I think all in all, it was a, a good way to come back from the bad days. Uh, there was a big presence uh, for Africa. We saw not only in the bikes, uh, also in the cars, uh, some of the other categories as well, uh, particularly South Africa. And we're seeing that rally rate is really booming uh, from that part of the world. Definitely. You know, I think there was over 40 of us Southern Africans there this year. And um, that's awesome. You know, the first year I went, there was only three or four of us. And uh, now we're up to 40, 45. So it was it was really good to see. And I think um, we finally, as Southern Africans, are getting hold of this rally, rally raid kind of racing. And uh, yeah, if we could get a couple more, more guys and more people to go and ride, it'll be awesome for us. But it's, uh, it's a good starting point. And, and I think we can get some more rallies going in Southern Africa. And uh, it'll, it'll be a, a big boost for us. And I think we, us as Southern Africans, have what it takes to, to be good at rallies. So yeah, there's no reason we shouldn't be. Now, the Dakar, uh, this is the first year it's part of the uh, World Rally Raid uh, Championship, uh, the W2RC, uh, if I got that right. Uh, and uh, stage wins also counting uh, their points awarded for stage wins. Uh, how much of a boost is it having a global championship? It's amazing. You know, it's um, it just also helps with the motivation so much because if it's a once-off race, you know, like um, there'd be not not much motivation to carry on to finish the race if you if you're so far back and and lost so much time. So you know, we're all racing to win, and everybody wants to win. So when you lose so much time, it's really hard to find the motivation to keep on going and to to keep on trucking until the end. So with it being a world championship, it played on my mind a lot. You know, I could have thrown in the towel and just left with zero points, but that would it would ruin the whole year. So at least now with some stage wins, I get a couple of extra points. And then obviously with finishing 16th in the, in the class, um, it helped a lot. And I'm glad I stuck it out and glad I got to the finish line. And uh, yeah, hopefully it'll help a lot with the, with the up and coming races so I can stay in the championship and not, you know, throw it all away the first round. Now, a word about the competition at the top. It was really tight uh, going into the final day. And in the end, uh, Kevin Benavides uh, winning it uh, for Argentina. Uh, just a quick word about those top riders. Uh, it was really stiff, the competition, no? Yeah, this year was uh, it was crazy. You know, we uh, everybody at the top is going so fast and everybody is so strong. It's like a, a real flat-out sprint nowadays. The Dakar is not what it used to be where it was, uh, you know, planning and strategy. Now you have to go as fast as you can for as long as you can. And, and uh, you know, it's definitely the fastest guys are winning now. It's not anymore um, anything else. So, yeah, the, we knew it was going to be tight. And obviously with the, with the opening bonus, it makes the racing even tighter. So, um, yeah, it was it was excellent to to witness it, but I would have way rather been a part of it and and battling for that podium position for sure. But uh, the guys are going really fast, and um, yeah, I'm proud to be a part of one of those guys and in that group of riders at the moment. It's uh, really special. But uh, yeah, we just need to change one or two small things, and then hopefully next year we can be in that fight until the very end. Now, it's incredible what's happening and how serious the Dakar is being taken. Uh, we're seeing in the cars, of course, uh, Audi with the electric vehicles, but we're also seeing the rise of uh, other countries like China. We're seeing uh, from you guys, uh, India. Um, just a quick word about the bikes and the technology. Um, how close or do you, do you feel you're on a par with the regular manufacturers uh, you got? Gas Gas, uh, KTM, uh, Husqvarna, Honda. Um, how close do you feel uh, the technology is on your bike uh, compared to the others? 
Um, I think we're there. You know, we've um, we've done a lot of changes this past year because of the new rules that are coming into Dakar and the speed limits and everything. We've had to make changes to our bikes. And uh, we definitely, as such a small team, I'm really proud and, and privileged to be on that team. And I think they've got exactly what the, the other manufacturers have on their bike. We're all on a par at the moment. And uh, even speed-wise, you know, all the bikes are pretty much pretty much even so it's it makes it it makes it really interesting and it definitely takes the race down to the wire obviously with the ktm group of of husqvarna and uh gas gas and ktm they've got lots of riders so for the for the for the racing and for the overall manufacturers it's it's a bit easier for them but um us as a small team with four riders we're definitely giving it to them and uh yeah giving it our best shot i think our bikes are now in a position where we can we can focus on winning the dakar next year and uh i really think that we're at that point all right and finally ross uh, in terms of your plans for this year uh, just just tell us uh, what what's next yeah, we've got a short break. Actually, we've only got a three-week break, and then I head off to Abu Dhabi for the Abu Dhabi Desert Challenge. It's round two of the World Championship, and uh, from there we go to we've got another three-week break, and then we go to Mexico um, for the Sonora Rally. That'll be round three, and uh, then we have a bit of a, a summer break, um, and then we go to Argentina for round four, and then Morocco round five, and then back to Dakar. So it's going to be a jam-packed year, but I'm really excited, and uh, hopefully I can do a couple of of local races in Botswana and South Africa and Southern Africa, maybe a couple of Zim and uh, yeah, hopefully come up to you guys sometime and uh, do some racing back in Kenya. It'll be awesome. But uh, yeah, we'll just have to see how it goes. Ross, on behalf of Motorsport 411, uh, we congratulate you. It was a brilliant, brilliant performance uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and we'll keep in touch with you uh, throughout 2023. Thank you guys so much for having me and uh, congratulations on the show yet again. And I uh, will definitely talk to you throughout the, the year this year. That's Ross Branch from Botswana who won two stages in the 2023 Dakar Rally. We'll be back. All the four and two wheeled action. Motorsport 411. So welcome back. Now our roundup of the 2023 Dakar Rally continues. Colin Clark is known as the voice of Rally and provides updates for Dirtfish. Colin, uh, thank you so much for speaking to us on Motorsport 411. Uh, your first ever Dakar Rally. Uh, just tell us about your experience. Yeah, yeah, something I've been wanting to do for a very long time, Sean. Um, you know, you see it every year and it, it almost falls at the perfect time, doesn't it? We've had six weeks, seven weeks since the last rally in the WRC. We're all looking forward to Monte Carlo and then we've got two weeks uh, of the Dakar and for the past 15 years I've been trying to work out a way to get there uh, and this year it all just came together um, and I went out I was invited out very kindly by the organizers the ASO um, and off I went uh, a little bit green a little bit naive quite unprepared uh, but I had the most fantastic time it was incredible we <laughs> in the weeks leading up to the the the, the flight that took us out there uh, there was a lot of talk about tents and uh, sleeping bags and camping equipment, and I just ignored it all, thinking that can't possibly be for me. <laughs> I'm 53 years old, I don't do camping. How wrong did I get that? <laughs> it, was, it was all about camping, it was all about you know, living the Dakar experience, and the whole thing was just quite incredible. From the, the scale of it is really what hits you first. The first, if you like, bivouac, we call it a service park, and it, 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 you know, it took me a long time to get used to calling it a bivouac. But the first one was uh, just north of a, a place called the Ambu, and genuinely it stopped me in my track, Sean, at two and a half 
thousand people. It was like a little town that had just sprung up uh, by the side of the, the Red Sea. And it, and it was phenomenal. The whole thing, the scale of it, the operation, uh, everything was just quite phenomenal. I loved just about, just about every second of it. I think what people love about Rally Raid and the Dakar in particular is that it's an equalizer. You've got, you know, huge global superstars like Sebastian Loeb and just incredible to see uh, photos of him uh, sleeping in a normal tent uh, like everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. Okay, you know, normally those boys would have motorhomes, but they're not big fancy motorhomes. They're just your normal motorhomes. But when they have what they call the marathon stages, marathon stages are loop stages. They go out from point A to point B, and then the next day they return uh, on a separate track from point B back to point A. And they're not allowed any outside help. So they're not allowed motorhomes, they're not allowed mechanics, engineers, anything like that with them. So the driver, co-driver are on their own and they get to point B, they get to the, the, the bivouac, which is the marathon bivouac. And it's, you know, I stood in a queue for an hour for food. Uh, Sebastian Loeb turned up and I thought, this will be interesting. Is he actually going to go to the back of the queue? Absolutely he did. He went to the back of the queue and he waited with everyone else for an hour to get his dinner that evening. So yeah, it, it is an equalizer and it's an equalizer in terms of performance, as well, you know, they, they have interesting regulations on the Dakar that allows companies, allows manufacturers like Audi to come and test their technologies, to come and prove their new technologies. They have what they call an EOT calculation. It's an incredibly um, complex calculation that very clever people at the FIA have come up with. But it's equalization of technologies. So it allows diesel four-wheel drives, petrol four-wheel drives, hybrid cars, electric cars, it allows them to compete on what should be, if the EOT calculation works, it should be a level footing. So it, it you know it penalizes some and it, it gives a little bit of leeway to others to try and balance everything out. And for me, it's fantastic. And it's potentially the way forward for, for rallying. You know, I think we have to get back to a point in rallying where we allow manufacturers to demonstrate their own technologies, their own innovations, their own um if you like, to, to showcase their wares, rather than as we've got in the WRC just now. We've got hybrid technology, but it's someone else's technology. You know, and everyone else has got the same technology. Um, you know, we have to allow the manufacturers the chance to demonstrate what they can do. Uh, and this equalization of technology, it allows, you know, championships like Dakar or uh, like Rally Raids to, to do that and for everyone to have a chance. You know, everyone's got a chance. And that, for me, is the really exciting thing about rally raids. And, and what's incredibly exciting is it's now a world championship. Um, it's first year, last year, second year, this year, and growing in strength, growing in numbers, growing in reach. It's going to Mexico this year, to Argentina, to Abu Dhabi, to um, uh, obviously to uh, Dakar. And there's a fifth one, which just eludes me just now. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it, it's an interesting format and I like it a lot. Now, a uh, big change uh, this year, well, a big factor this year was the weather. Um, it, it absolutely chucked it down uh, in the oh. desert. Uh, how was that oh. experience for you? Oh, sure. You know, as I say, I was, I was quite underprepared for the camping thing. Uh, I did go with all the correct gear in the end because, um, thank goodness, the shops are open on Boxing Day here. I flew out on the 27th of December um, and made a mad dash to the local camping store on the 26th. Uh, the first week it was fine. The weather was, we were, you know, for all the pre-event checks and the build-up and the scrutineering and the prologue, we were on the Red Sea and it was, it was very, very pleasant. Uh, we then headed up towards Alula and then into Hyle and goodness me, the heavens just opened up. Um, 
you know, it was different. You'll have seen the footage, I'm sure, of, of cars trying to make their way through the wadis that were just raging torrents of water, um, mud that was just up to your knees. And in the, the, the bivouac in particular in Heil, it was absolutely just a mud bath. Um, and it was challenging. It was really, really challenging. And, and, and when you go on a Dakar, you know, I talk about the scale, the scale of the, the number of competitors, the size of the bivouac, the lengths and the distances that are covered. It's incredible. You know, on, on the Friday, the first Friday, I think, of the event, uh, they were coming into Riyadh. And they, you know, the organizers reorganized maybe 25% of the route at three, four hours notice, which when you've got such an enormous undertaking and operation is just incredible. So they reorganized it. We went into Riyadh and you've never seen rain like it. It absolutely battered it down. Now, bear in mind, the drivers, the riders, the support crews um, who came through the stage, you know, they'd done a 450 kilometer stage. They'd driven 100 kilometers to get to the stage. The liaison was then 420 kilometers from the stage back to Riyadh in the dark, in the pouring rain, on flooded motorways. Uh, and they were coming in all night. They were coming in all night. And it's, you know, for me, you know, these guys, then they, they, they get a couple hours sleep, maybe if they're lucky, they dry out and then they head off to do it all again the next morning. It is just the most incredible challenge. And the weather added to it, the drivers, the riders, the teams asked for a more challenging route this year. They said last year's Dakar was a little bit too simple, a little bit too straightforward. They asked for a more challenging route. And David Casteras, who's the, the, the boss of the championship, he gave them a challenging route. Add to that the, the unexpected challenging weather, and it was a proper, proper Dakar challenge. Uh, incredible stuff, really incredible stuff to see. What I find in, found incredible was to see the desert and the hills which are normally barren and brown, green, green with, with grass, green with shrubs. It was it was quite some sight. Now, one of the beauties about the Dakar is, um, uh, and unfortunately, we, we saw death of a spectator, but um, is how close the spectators can get to the drivers and all that. Um, when, when you look at the typical World Rally Championship, uh, it's quite difficult to get access uh, to the teams, to the drivers and all that. How refreshing was that for you? No, I wouldn't use the word refreshing, Sean. Um, I really wouldn't. It was, as you mentioned, there was one spectator that was killed. I found it quite concerning. I really did. Um, it's a strange thing, the Dakar. The bivouac is completely sealed off. The security around the bivouac is incredible. You know, unless you've got a wristband with a digital chip in it, you will not get into the bivouac. So you've got two and a half thousand competitors. You've got you know, 500 cars, trucks, buggies. You've got a whole load of bikes in there, a whole load of servicing going on and not a single spectator. So the spectators then gravitate out towards the stages. Now, as is the way with any sort of rallying, um, your spectators find out where these stages are. And, and you know, it wasn't pre-published. There was, there was some idea of roughly where they were going, but the exact routes are always kept uh, secret until the very last minute. Um, you know, the FIA have got involved in cross-country rallying. I think one of the things they will have to look at, they will have to look at is spectator safety. I, I was genuinely concerned at one point that I went into with um, cars going everywhere. We're in the dunes, local cars. Yes, they know how to drive in the dunes. Cars going everywhere. I could hear Nasser on the start line and there are people going uh, in the wrong direction, in their four by fours, up across blind crests in the wrong way. There were kids running around. The whole thing um, at that point, at that point, and I'm only talking about that one point, scared me, genuinely scared me. I thought, hmm, th this, is, this is not really what, what we want to see. Now, it doesn't happen often, and it's not, it's not part of the course, that is for sure. 
But, you know, that was the stage where sadly that gentleman lost his life just a couple more kilometers on from where I was. Um, and at the time I thought we, we need we need something just a little bit more, um, uh, you know, a, a little more control at certain sections. You can't you can't obviously marshal 450 kilometers of stages, but but spectators can't get into 450 kilometers. The spectators in that stage were in the first five or six kilometers and that was it. So, no, I think that's something that needs to be looked at. Um, you know, it is great. You can see them. You can see them on the road sections. You can go in across the desert. But there are issues, I think, that maybe need to be addressed around maybe not so much spectator safety, but spectator education, educating the spectators as to what to do, where to go. You know, these are people, particularly out in the desert, who know the desert. They know how to drive in the dunes. They know how not to get stuck. Uh, but they don't necessarily know, A, just how fast these cars are upon them, and B, the fact that, you know, if they are coming that quick, one momentary lapse in concentration, and there's a car there that's on top of you. So, you know, I think it might be a, just, just a matter of education more than perhaps marshalling, but, but there is definitely work to do in that area. Were you surprised with the speed of uh, the stages? Well, how fast these guys were going? Uh, there was a speed limit uh, on the bikes and, and the cars. I think it was 160 kilometers an hour. Uh, but were you surprised at how fast they were going? It was, Sean, it was, you know, and it, it was one of the fastest Dakars I think we've seen in a long time. Now, what's happened with this, this equalization of technology, balance of performance, BOP, that's the other term that you'll hear thrown around is that they have actually brought the power of the cars down. And as you rightly say, they've restricted them. But what that means is our drivers are pushing flat out more often than perhaps they were in the past. And in the first day or two, I could see it. You know, when you're driving in dunes, it doesn't really matter what you can see beyond the dune. There's always a degree of caution needed as you approach the crest of the dune because you just don't know what's beyond that crest. You don't know whether it's a vertical drop. You don't know um, what it is, you know. So you always, are in the past, you've always put the car slightly sideways, a bit of brake just to give yourself um, a little bit, little bit of, of perhaps um, thinking time, and then off you go. What we saw on this Dakar was a whole load more flat out over the dunes, a whole load more jumping. And, you know, Carlos Sainz, Sainz, Carlos Sainz's one that ended his rally was a mistake and an enormous, enormous, enormous mistake. He should never have been flat out over the top of that, that crest. But that's what we saw all rally. We saw drivers pushing harder, taking more jumps, um, you know, using less of the brake, being less cautious than we've seen in the past. And, and that's really why we saw Peter Hansel, why we saw um, Sainz and we saw a number of other drivers uh, falling out of the rally because A, they were, they, were, they were damaging their cars beyond repair, but also they were damaging driver and co-driver beyond repair. And this, this is what we've got to now. And, and I was speaking to Malcolm Wilson about it uh, because they're planning a T1 Plus, which is the, the top category, if you like, the WRC of cross-country rallying, T1 Plus car for next year. And he said, one of the things we are going to have to concentrate on is making the cockpit as comfortable as possible because the cars are as capable as they can be. So how do we get a bit more performance? Well, over four, five, six hours, you know, if we've got comfortable crew in the car for, you know, if we can say they're, they're comfortable for the last two or three hours, whereas in the past they've been enduring it for the past two or the last two or three hours, if we can make them comfortable, we will get better performances out of our crew. So he went away from from his little fact-finding mission, very much with that in mind. And, and I agree with that. You know, we're at the point now where it's the crews that break and not the cars. And that's worrying. That's really quite worrying. 
Will you be back next year? Hey, hey, hey. Well, you know what I was told? I was told by everyone that you never do one Dakar. You know, you either don't do the Dakar or you do it multiple times. I would love to go back next year. I really would, even with the camping. Listen, I cheated a little bit, Sean. I did have, you know, I was away for 22 nights. I had, um, I think it was six nights in hotels. In, in Heil, where it was a mud bath and pouring down with rain, I couldn't face it. And it was a hotel five minutes from the bivouac, so off I went. Um, but I would go back for sure because I would like to do it a little differently. I don't think I got the most out of my Dakar experience because I was so green, so naive about certain things. Um, I think I would be way better prepared if I went back to cover it next year. I could do an awful lot more and I would, I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely, um, but I'm certain I could enjoy it a whole load more on the second trip. So yeah, uh, put my name down, Sean. I'm off. All right. Just finally, a quick word about Nasser Alatir, uh, oh. Sebastian Loeb with those six stages in a row. And then in the bikes, uh, how close it was uh, on the final day. Oh, listen, Nasser Alatia is is um, a legend. He's an absolute legend of Dakar. Uh, you know, five wins on the Dakar. Peter Hansel's the only man who's won more on on in the cars. You know, uh, the great Ali Vattenen won it four times. You're the uh, greatest driver of all time, Sebastian Loeb, is yet to win it three times second. Uh, that puts uh, you know Nasser's performance into perspective. He is a world class, the best, in fact, cross-country driver in the world just now. And he's what? He's the same age as me, I think. He's 52, I believe. Um, you know, I think that's more or less optimal. What I think with Carlos Sainz at 60-61, I think that's on the cusp. I really do. I think I think that's about, you know, because of the, 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 the stresses I talked about earlier, you know, 60, 61, 62, that's maybe, even with the, the, the talent and the experience, maybe a little bit too old. But Nasser is at the peak of his performance. And he, you know, he's a thinking driver, and he always has been. He's not the quickest driver on the stage sections. And we see that. You know, when we're on the tracks, he will lose time. But he doesn't panic. He knows how to think his way through a rally raid. He has got tremendous rally raid craft. Ten minutes down on the first stage, any signs of panic? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Didn't care. And by the end of stage six, five or six, he had an hour and 20 minutes of a lead. Um, he is the world's best and, and deserves all the plaudits he gets. I, I think he's, he's a super guy. He's great for the sport. The bikes that you mentioned, oh my goodness me, Toby Price and Kevin Bienvenides. I think that's how you say his surname, the Argentinian rider. Uh, just the most sensational competition. I mean, you know, I, I don't cover bikes, but I couldn't help but be drawn to the competition. In the final stage, with under 100 kilometers to go, having competed for 4,300 kilometers, they were tied on time. Their times were identical. How is that possible? How is that possible when you see the, the myriad of different uh, conditions that the drivers had to face, the different decisions and choices they had to make through the stages? Those two boys were tied on time. Okay, the last 100 kilometers went Kevin's way and he, he took a great win and Toby Price, you cannot imagine how he felt at that stop line. So close, leading the event, albeit by 12 seconds, going into that stage, tied for times inside the last 100 kilometers and then losing it in that last section. You know, Toby Price has won it twice before, but he'd have loved to have won it again. We may see Price back next year. He's moving towards cars. That's his stated ambition for the future. But Kevin Bienvenidas did a great job, a great job out there and thoroughly deserved his victory. It was 
it was absolutely fascinating watching the bikers and your the level of skill there the level of commitment the level of determination of all of those bikers is just it has to be seen to be believed they, they put in superhuman performances they're the for, for me um the cars uh, the buggies they're great i love them love watching them i love the characters but you know um up on the top of the pedestal for me are the bikers. They do the most sensational job. It's uh, it's it's something that, that really I watch and I admire greatly. Colin, uh, finally, your it's amazing how time flies. Uh, we're already starting uh, the 2023 World Rally Championship season. Oh. Uh, Monte Carlo on this week and... The big story, of course, is Oit Tanak uh, moving to M Sport Ford. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about him this week. Um, mm. it, it's, it looks interesting on paper. Um, can Ford deliver? Uh, have they got the resources compared to the full factory teams of uh, Hyundai and uh, Toyota? Uh, how do you see this unfolding? Yeah, listen, they don't have the resources. That's that's the absolute obvious answer. They do not have the resources that Toyota and Hyundai have. And we can see that quite clearly. And Malcolm Wilson has said, look, we are putting all of our efforts this year into delivering the driver's title to Tanak. You know, they don't have three cars. They will have two cars on most runs. So the manufacturer's title, that is not their priority. In fact, they know that that's not going to happen. What does that mean? Well, do you know what? To win a title, you have to have good wingmen who can help you out, who can help you out and deliver you extra points, perhaps more pertinently, can take points off the opposition. When you're having a bad rally, now, you know, you've got young Pierre-Louis Lube there, who I was enormously impressed by last year. He came on in leaps and bounds. He had a nightmare of a year in the Hyundai. He got into the, the Puma last year. He won stages. He led a rally. Where was it he was leading? Um... Let me think he was leading in Greece at the end of day one, wasn't he? Um, so, yeah, he has the potential to continue developing and to be that wingman that Tanak needs. But I suspect Tanak will have to do it on his own this year. And he is perfectly capable of that. He really is. He will need a little bit of luck. Um, he is more determined. He's got more fire in his belly than I think I've ever seen. And, you know... When you have a fired up Oit Tanak, you take a step or two back. You know, you're careful what you say to him when you ask him questions. He, he is a frightening competitor when he's fired up. And I, I genuinely believe that Tanak will be a challenger this year. I think it's going to be very hard to beat Toyota. Toyota are an incredible team. Um, you know, they've got an amazing lineup uh, with, with Robin Perra there, obviously, defending his title. We'll have to see how Elvin Evans comes on uh, this year. And then, you know, that third car between... Takamoto-san and Sebastian Ogier, it's a strong, strong lineup. It really is. They'll be difficult to beat. Thierry Neuville, yes, he's got a good chance. But again, we talk about wingmen. Um, you know, let's see how Esapeka Lappi gets on at Hyundai. I like Esapeka Lappi. I've always liked him. I like his speed. I like his honesty. For me, he was one of those five, six, seven years ago, maybe a few more years ago. He was a real prospect. And we've never quite seen him hit the heights, unfortunately, as a Pekka Lappi. But is he a good number two? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. He may be that good number two, that wingman that Thierry Neuville needs. But again, you know, whoever wins the title this year, if you're going to wrestle the title from Toyota, be it, you know, Thierry Neuville or Tanak, you are going to need things to go your way. A little bit of luck occasionally. Whoever gets the rub of the green, I think, will be the one battling against the Toyotas. For me, Toyota are the team to watch this year once again, but 
Hyundai, a rejuvenated Hyundai with the new team boss, with a slightly new driver lineup. Might they surprise us all? Well, it's possible. It's very, very possible. But my money, still on Hyundai, uh, sorry, still on Toyota, but watch out for Oit Tanak. Watch out for Oit Tanak. He could do sensational things. Maybe not here in Monte Carlo. You know, a, a fourth, maybe fifth place would be a good result. A podium would be a great result. He's never got on well with Monte Carlo. Um, so let's see what happens, Sean. But, but you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the year. Three teams, three winning drivers. Um, you know, what more could we ask for? It really is setting itself up to be a great year. Yeah, um, a, a quick word, first of all, about Kale Rovapere. He says he's still hungry for the title. And then secondly, um, a lot of talk about yeah. the uh, Rally 2 category, the WRC 2 category. Um, a lot more entries in there. In fact, uh, it looks like the competition could be even stiffer than the main category. Yeah, and that, that's very often the way with Rally 2. You know, I, I don't think it'll be... Um, you know, what have we got in the main category? We've got, uh, at the start of the year realistically, four drivers who will want to be drivers' champion at the end of this year. We've got Thierry Neuville uh, in Hyundai, and I think he's the only one. I don't think that Esa Pekka Lappi will be looking to win the title um, in Hyundai. When we go to Toyota, you've clearly got Robin Perra, and you've got Elvin Evans, who will also be looking at you know putting things right after a very disappointing year last year. And then we go to M-Sport, and you've got Oitanak, four drivers. You know, Yes, we go to WRC2, and you might say there are five or six drivers so there are more drivers in WRC2 that will keep things interesting um, for sure it is a little disappointing where we're at just now we go to Monte Carlo the most prestigious event of the year and it's what um, rally one cars we've only got I think it's eight full-time drivers well nine because you can include Takamoto can't you as a full-time driver I guess um, so no it's eight I think it is eight eight full-time drivers uh, on the start list um I'm not sure, eight or nine, whatever it is. Uh, it's a little disappointing. It's a little disappointing. But that's where we're at just now with these regulations. And there's not much we can do about that. But yeah, WRC2 is going to be exciting. You know, Oliver Solberg, there to prove himself. Gus Greensmith, there to prove himself. Andreas Mickelson, a man who perhaps feels hard done by by Hyundai. He was waiting, our understanding is he was waiting for that contract to be sent through to him. And it never happened happened and he's on the phone saying come on guys what's happening here silence so you know you've got him who's, who's who's clearly fired up wants to do a job and many others in that category who will be worth watching for sure so yeah it'll be great it'll be entertaining if things get a little bit boring in the top class for sure we can just you know turn our attention to wrc2 and we will be entertained that is for sure there is snow where you are in the UK. Uh, the conditions yeah. always uh, a factor in Monte Carlo uh, between the ice, a uh, little bit of snow uh, and the tarmac. Uh, tire choice is going to be critical. Uh, we've seen some big, big crashes uh, in the last few years, uh, notably Oit Tanak with that massive crash. Um, you know, conditions will be key. Conditions are always key in the Monte, Sean. You're absolutely right. Now, you know, don't forget the Monte this year is 100% based out of Monaco. So we're in the, the Alp Maritime, which are those mountains just to the north of Monaco and Monte Carlo. Now, those mountains rise to, a, 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 you know, an impressive height. 2,000, I think the Col de Turini is around about 2,600 metres. Um, but we are that little bit further south. And, you know, oh, I don't know what it was now, maybe 12, 14 years ago, um, we moved north up towards Valence for a couple of years and then Gap for, for quite a number of years, really searching for the winter conditions because we had quite a few Monte Carlo rallies without the winter conditions. And without the winter conditions, 
you know, it can be a little bit processional. I, I know that's maybe sacrilege when you're talking about the Monte Carlo, but it can be a little bit processional. Dry tarmac, well, it's dry tarmac, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I think we've seen a bit of snow on the recce. Uh, the forecast looks you know, interesting for the week. We're not going to see snow banks. We're not going to see mountains of snow um, like we have occasionally seen in the past. But that's not what's needed. What you need are changeable conditions where, as you say, you know, the first stage might have three or four or five kilometers of really icy conditions. Decisions then to be made on tire choice, on tire strategy, on how you approach it. And that's what we want with Monte Carlo. It's that indecision, that strategy, that choice of tires, that choice of perhaps, you know, how you approach the stage. You know, and it doesn't have to be a full covering of snow, a full covering of ice. It's just the odd stage where it might be wet, it might be icy, it might be snowy, just for a few kilometers. And then we see strategy coming into play. And that is what makes Monte Carlo really, really interesting. Colin Clark, uh, the voice of Rally. Uh, we really appreciate you talking to us on Motorsport 411. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll be keeping in touch with you uh, throughout 2023. Uh, it's been a joy, Sean, as always. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, we're all off to enjoy the Monte. <laughs> Sports 411 with Sean Cardavillis. So that's it for Motorsport 411 this week. Our thanks once again to Ahmed Alquari, Ross Branch, and Colin Clark. Our thanks as always to Big City Studio. I'm Sean Cardavillis. See you next week.